Welcome into the 30 for 30 Club podcast. It is February 27th, and I am joined, as always, by my co-host, Bobby Nemeth. Bobby, how are you doing today? Good, man. Rainy, cold Sunday. Um, feels rain rainy and cold out in the baseball world as well. But I've been yeah. saved by my addiction to Elden Ring, which has consumed nearly 20 hours of my life over the last two days. Um, how much so- sleep have you gotten? <laughs> I mean, I'm getting sleep, but it's just like rotated the wrong way i'm going to bed much later and getting up much later i'm I'm starting to regress into my teenage years a little bit with my sleep schedule um which is a rewarding feeling you know i miss these i miss these times so I'm, i'm having a good time over the weekend um outside of baseball news which we'll get into how's your weekend? i remember Oh, go ahead. Well, I I remember back when I was, you know, a youngin staying up late playing video games that sometimes I would like have dreams about the video games. Have you reached that stage yet where like even though you turn it off and you go to sleep, you're actually kind of still in the game? Okay, not about this game, but um, that's so funny you mentioned that. I had a dream last week about a video game. So one of the other games I play like religiously is Apex Legend, which is a it's a multiplayer battle royale game that i have nearly a thousand hours into and i had been grinding and playing it a lot and so i dreamt about like like fight scenarios like it in like team fights and winning those fights and specific weapons and things like that and I, that never happens to me but apparently i was so entrenched into apex that it invaded my dreams so that's the first time that's ever happened to me was last week Really? The first time? Okay. Yeah. Well, maybe Elden Ring will be the second. I mean, maybe I'm heading that direction. You hit 30 years old and your dreams just get invaded by everything in your life. They start getting weird. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, back to back to real life. Um, it was, as you hinted at, it wasn't a very, uh, it wasn't a week full of rainbows and unicorns no. in the baseball world. Um as you mentioned in last week's podcast, this was kind of the last week to save the regular season as we know it. And do you want to update us on how that critical week went and where we're at now? Um, yeah, I mean, my hot take is that I, I think MLB expected when they set this deadline to lose games, I think their strategy was to lose games. I don't think they ever expected this deadline of February February 28th to uh to get a deal done. They they didn't expect it to happen. Um they ex- they expected it to not happen. And because they they don't want to move on anything. So with prefacing what I just said on my hot take, things went very poorly this week. There was little bits of optimism each day up until what like Friday when the Players Association submitted a new proposal where they thought they moved on quite a bit of things and topics. They moved towards the owners, and the owners unanimously rejected it. And it pissed off the players. It made the players feel like they weren't even negotiating, they, that the owners weren't listening. And there's a bunch of reports out there that people just wanted to, quote-unquote, leave the table and leave negotiations because... It's it's not that it's the owners are basically playing like take it or leave it, and if you don't take it, then you're we're gonna lose games and you're not gonna get paid for lost games. That's their strategy right now. They're not negotiating. I mean, we're talking about we're talking about incremental like insignificant increases from the owners. 
So if, you know, the Players Association wants so-and-so, let's say $500 million on something, and the owners want $100 million on something, then what the owners are doing is they're giving, they're giving like $101 million. They're getting just like a million dollars more. They're not even giving 1% in a lot of cases towards that middle ground on any topic. They're not budging. They're not moving. There's no, it doesn't seem like there's any positive intent to get a deal done that is on the player's favor or even close to. The owners say, this is what we want and we're not going to move. And if you don't agree to it, we're going to all lose games. Now, granted, the owners don't want to lose an entire season, but I think they have a deadline, an actual deadline in their mind that they haven't said, or they need to get a deal done. And I don't think that's anytime soon. I think they're more than prepared and willing to lose half the season at this point. So it's really frustrating, really, really frustrating because it doesn't seem like there's any. And because of that, too. The players feel that, and they don't want, like, why would they want to negotiate and meet in the middle with the owners when they're playing the game like that? When there's no positive intent, there's, there's really no will or, like, willingness to negotiate on anything, on anything. So this take-it-or-leave-it tactic is upsetting to the players, it's upsetting to the fans, and we all lose out. I mean, really, we're all losers in this situation. The owners are basically saying, like, if we lose games and we lose revenue there, we'll make it up by forcing the players to sign a CBA that is unbalanced and favors us so that ultimately in the long run, we make more money. They're willing to lose money now to make money later. And that's, that's really where we're at right now. And I, I just can't state it better than saying that we're all extremely frustrated, I think. I think all players, fans, journalists, all extremely frustrating. And they're still meeting. They're still technically today and tomorrow to get a deal done. But at this point, like I said, the, the small incremental like, advantages that the players have been getting isn't enough to make a deal. The owners are not moving. They're not ticking anywhere close to what the players want. And they know that. And they're not going to. So I think, <clears throat> I think the season might not start till May or June at this point. I mean, what have you been following on, John? Yeah, I think I've been reading on The Athletic a bit about it. And I always think about, like, who has leverage and is which side is kind of in the best upper hand for negotiations. and. Unfortunately, the players are always going to have the lower hand, in my view, because, you know, the owners can bleed the players dry financially before the players can bleed the owners dry. Right. It's like for the owners, if they even if they did, they're not going to miss an entire season. But even if they did, like it wouldn't change the owner's lifestyle in any way. If, you know, a a lot of major league players that haven't signed big long-term deals or haven't entered their arbitration years yet, like they can't, a lot of them can't afford to lose an entire season um, without their lifestyle being dramatically altered. You know, if you're making the league minimum of, what is it like uh, 560,000? Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, you know, that sounds like a lot of money to you and I, but a lot of those players are supporting people beyond just themselves and their own, you know, partner. They they might be um supporting their parents and maybe their partner's parents and you know, these are a lot of individuals who came from pretty rough backgrounds and so if their salary for the year goes from 560 to 300, you know, that's a that's a pretty big drastic difference for their lifestyle and right. who they are able to provide for and what they are able to provide to their greater family and the network around them. Um and so like they they don't have the leverage there. And then the other way that they don't have the leverage is unfortunately the way that social media works is we it's much easier to go after a player because you can attach a face to the issue. You know, like if you are a fan of a certain team, you can just a lot of people who aren't following this closely are going to blame certain players. They're going to blame the star players on the team that have, you know, the multi-million dollar 10-year deals. And they're going to say, like, why can't you, you know, why Max Scherzer, you took all this money. Why can't you, you know, negotiate and just get the season started for everybody? and you attach that blame onto the players who are the most visible and the owners get to hide in the background because, you know, I bet like 99% of fans don't have no clue what their owner, what the owner of their team looks like. Um, yeah. That's I mean, just kind of the way human nature works is like, we're going to place that blame on the first person that you know <clears throat> comes to mind, essentially that's easily visual. Yeah, I mean, I, I like nobody, not, I wouldn't say a lot nobody, but a lot of people wouldn't be able to look around the league and tell you not only what the owners look like, but what their names are. So to your point, mm-hmm. they kind of get to hide behind the faces of the players. And that's kind of like another point of how they really do. I mean, they, they do. And of course, a lot of these players make millions of dollars, but the owners do take advantage dramatically of of their essentially they're employees they hide behind them and they make money off of them and they find ways to take advantage and abuse them essentially for a financial gain and they're gonna do what they can to make sure that the players are getting the the brunt of the bad reaction from fans you know on twitter or on facebook um and that's not that's that's a pretty crappy position to be in as a player and it's probably going to force the players to make a move quicker than the owners because it's just harder to target owners. I think, although a lot of the things I've been reading is that the players seem extremely unified. So I don't think that has been the case in previous CBAs. And a lot of the times, the especially last CBA, the players really felt like they got the short end of the stick when they signed the deal. And I, I just, <clears throat> I really believe that they don't want that to happen again. And so they're really you know, putting their, their foot into the ground and, and saying, no, like we have benchmarks that we need to hit. And if we don't hit it, then we're, we're not going to play and we're okay with the consequences. It really feels like the players are unified with that message, which makes me again, believe that we're going to lose games because the players aren't going to fold. It just doesn't seem like that's going to happen. Yeah. I mean, we'll see. I think the, Part of what makes me kind of buy into that 
argument that you have is we went through this in 2020. And so there are a lot of wounds that are still pretty raw. Absolutely. Um, and it's not like this is, it's not like this hasn't been on players' minds for a while, I guess, is, is the way to say it. And so maybe that's an argument for there needs to be a bigger like reckoning moment than there normally would be if there wasn't this pandemic going on and if they didn't have a shortened season just two years ago. Yeah, the interesting thing, too, with, with that, and you bring that point up, is that we lost games in 2020 as well. I mean, not obviously because the season was suspended, but this season could have started earlier, but the league and the Players Association couldn't agree on terms to start the season then. So we've already seen it within the last couple of years where they couldn't come to an agreement and we lost potential games. We've already seen that, and now we're just seeing that on a bigger scale right now. And to your point, uh, it's still like very fresh in the minds of these players, especially Tony Clark, the president of the Players Union. He hates Rob Manfred. He hates the commissioner. Like they do not get along at all. And if you think that doesn't play a part into these negotiations, and you're wrong, it definitely does. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Manfred is in a a spot where he has to appease both small market owners and big market owners and in the range of billionaires to us it doesn't seem like it you know there's much difference between the wealthiest baseball team and the poorest franchise but uh for rob manfred that is a difficult bridge to gap um and it's something that i think reports are coming out is he <laughs> His own reputation and his own ability to do his job well is also at stake. Um, and he's having a hard time kind of, you know, I think, I think bridging that gap between the Kansas cities of the world and the Boston Red Sox of the world. I mean, I'm not sure when his contract is up, but I have a hard time believing that whenever his contract is up, that he will renew it. Uh, he's been he's just been in in like the bad side of the news for baseball for the last couple of years through the pandemic through you know the cheating scandal with Houston and then the quote unquote punishments that he handed out in the league and then now with this the CBA act it's just, it's disastrous i mean this right here is the biggest stain on his resume and i get you trying to be fair to him appeasing different markets but like Yes, there's a difference, but teams are profitable. Teams make money. And to ask them to spend just a couple million dollars more a year to support young players or promote a little bit more spending in certain markets, not their own, it's really it's really not outside the realm of possibility. That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about teams not being able to do these things that the players are asking for. We're talking about them not wanting to, not being willing to. And so <clears throat> that's like the interesting thing about it is that something's got to break eventually here. And I think, I think that's why we're to the point of missing half the season. I just, I just hope that they get to that point where they finally find a middle ground before June 24th, because that's when I'm supposed to go to be going to New York to see my first Yankees game. And if it gets canceled because of this nonsense, I'm, I'm going to be, I'm going to cry. Like I'm going to be so upset about that. 
And, you know, I'm not the only, I'm like not the only individual that is going to be seeing their first baseball game this year or seeing their first game in Yankee Stadium or Fenway Park, Wrigley Field that's had a plan for months. And to think about all of those like dreams and plans and vacations that are going to be not ruined, but definitely like dampered on because of this is, is really unfortunate. And that's what's happening. I mean, the biggest victims here are the fans. That's the biggest victims here is us baseball fans and i think a lot of us feel kind of like we're left out right now and kind of getting stomped on and um you know of course i side with the players the more educated i've been and understanding where they're coming from but you know the battle that they're doing is is not ultimately gonna inflict damage on themselves in a lot of ways it's gonna inflict damage on their sport and uh with the fans as well and uh that's a sad fact about it yeah i would I would say the biggest victim is probably the employees who, um, you know, don't make a incredibly lucrative salary or incredibly lucrative wage that rely on baseball operations in order to make a salary. Um, so, you know, your seasonal workers are probably those that are most um, at risk that rely on a good six months of home games to work. That's interesting, too, because then you think about the impact of that, that they can't wait around for two or three months to see if their employer comes back. Then if they find other positions, other careers, and so on, what does that mean when baseball does come back? Does they have to have a mass hiring, you know, fair to get these seasonal workers, stadium workers, low-level employee workers back up? Um, filled in um, it, there's a lot of things here I mean a lot of things that are connected and a lot of consequences that are coming out of this uh, it's really unfortunate I mean I'm being negative I, I think but I'm I've tried to be optimistic for the last couple of weeks and after this week it's just hard to find the optimism in it I mean you're seeing it all over too between the players the writers journalists insiders and so on nobody feels good about what's happened this week and nobody feels good about the season starting uh, on time the only person i see is is john Heyman. <laughs> he's so fun he's so he's like the most optimistic person he's an mlb insider and he like there's this sea of negativity on twitter about how bad everything's going and then his is in there and he's like well you know let's not uh, let's not forget about that they made progress on this and they're 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 chipping away and they're doing a good job and so bless his heart he's trying to be optimistic but he's a uh, he's in the vast has- minority or he has somebody's back to scratch. That's the yeah, and he does work. He does. He's uh, he does work a lot on MLB tonight and MLB Network. So you have to think that he is probably motivated by the by the league more than the players' side of things. He did say yesterday. He's like, oh, okay, I know all this negative information is coming out, not to be contradictory, but you know, I think there's some progress being made. And one of my sources said that uh, they really feel like they're going to get a deal done today. They're going to make movement and then um zach Britton in the comments simply put it this is not accurate <laughs> and he's been in the negotiations he's the guy that's been in there talking with the owners and so on so i thought that was kind of funny the contradictory information coming out right there and zach Britton just kind of like breaking news slapping him and be like no stop it that's not happening it's a funny funny age that we live in that's certainly a um, where like a respond to a tweet is news in itself. You know, and just to but. give some perspective real quick on 
what I was talking about earlier, the, like the main things that are being held up in negotiations right now is the CBT or luxury tax. So that's if your payroll is of this amount and you go over that, you pay a severe tax for the rest of the league. It's called the competitive balance tax. It's for teams like the Yankees and so on that just spend a ton of money to get big name players, but then low market teams can't do that. So they that's their own like their little way of giving back to the small market teams. So the players want that that threshold, okay, to increase. The the owners don't because that means that they'll be incentivized by players who are free agents to spend more money because they can. So owners don't want to spend money. That's what we're talking about here. Owners don't want to spend money. Players want them to spend money. And so the gap between the gap between what the owners want and the players want is $31 million. Okay. The owners, after weeks of negotiation, negotiation, bumped that up by $1 million. There's a $30 million gap. They bumped it up by $1 million. Okay. So they're not doing that. And then we've talked about the pre-R bonus pool. There's still $95 million in between that. I believe it's $15 million to like $110. So the players want $110 million in this pool, and the owners are only willing to spend $15 million. So that's like 10% of what the players are asking for. And then we go to minimum salary. John talked about it a little bit earlier, and we've talked about it before. Minimum salary last year was 560k. The players wanted to be up to, I believe, 775, so an extra 200,000 dollars. The owners have been incrementally increasing about 10,000 dollars per ne- negotiation and per offer. So but right now, the gap between what the players want and what the owners want is 135,000. And again, the owners have only been going up 10,000 every week or so. So you can see through those big pieces, monumental pieces getting deal done, that there is really no movement. And I find it hard to believe in the next two days that that's going to get done. So I just want to give some perspective on that real quick. Well, by by that uh, pace that they're on, that means that the season will start in 14 weeks. <laughs> I'm 14 weeks. What does that put us, John? That puts us Three months? Uh, big, late like July 4th. No. Oh wait, no. Wait, yeah, right. Fourteen weeks. You sure? June. It would be like beginning of June. Yeah, yeah, yeah. See, mid June. I was right. Yeah. That's assuming no uh, ramp up period. I mean, you'd you'd hope that it doesn't stay on that pace because that's a terrible pace. But I don't think the owners it would be kind of care. crazy if that was the actual pace. But um, so if you were, you mentioned earlier that you think the owners probably have. A, a secret date in mind yeah. that is pretty impressive haven't hasn't gotten leaked or anything because i i think i agree with that that they probably do have a date maybe not like unanimous agreement but there's probably a date where those smaller market owners start getting really yeah a little itchy and start getting that do not look unified let's just put it that way um you have some people break off from the pack what do you think that date is? Like, just your best guess. I don't know. Maybe the All-Star break. And that's just me just really? throwing something out wow. there. Maybe the All-Star break, I think, that is, you know, it's a little bit more than halfway through the season. 
again, they could afford it technically, but they definitely don't want to lose an entire season. So, and like you, you think said, that they would. Sorry, you think they would go through the trouble of playing like a third of a season? Yeah, hundred percent. Of course, the players still want to get paid, right? The owners still want to get revenue, but the risk of doing something like this is that it really hinders the sport. And what does that look like when it comes back? Do do fans just flock to the stadium because they haven't had baseball in so long, or do we have some bittered fans that say, you know what? No, I don't want to give money to these owners after all this time. Like I'm not going to go. And then, you know, what about all the contracts that they have with the TV networks right now? Because that's where a lot of the profit comes from in baseball is local TV contracts that air their games. I mean, it's a big problem in baseball, too, because there's so much blackout. It's hard for player or fans in different sides of the country to watch their favorite team. And that's common across all sports. It is common, but it's it's really prevalent in baseball, especially because of the number of the games and and I just I don't know what that looks like. I don't know what this looks like if they come back in July. If it really, I, I mean, I think they probably think they have an educated guess too, and they're like, well, we don't think like it's a, they think it's a it's a, a safe risk. Think they don't think the owners who I'm speaking of, don't think that they're going to lose much popularity. And I think they're wrong. I mean, I think right now we're seeing a lot of people that aren't even baseball fans talk about how how kind of like disturbing it is what's happening with the negotiations and um, just how messy it is. It just looks so messy from the outside, especially if you're not. I mean, if you're really into it, you know it's messy. But if you're if you're not as educated on baseball and the CBA and what's going on, you're just looking at it as, like you said earlier, like millionaires and billionaires not being able to figure it out. And it's just a bad look for the game. And, you know, the sport's already in a position where it's it's not the most popular. I mean, of course, it makes money, and, and there's a lot of fans out there, but it gets it gets pummeled by the NFL, obviously. I mean, everything gets pummeled by the NFL, and basketball and the NBA is still probably more popular sport, and um, they're just not doing themselves any favors right now. Yeah, I'll say... I think 2020 is our blueprint. I think that those smaller market owners start getting really squirmy in end of May, early June. And no, I agree. I agree with you. That they, they're not going to wait till July, I don't think. I think that they will go to their, new, their large market counterparts and say, hey, we're starting the season June 15th. I mean, they could get squirmy, but it takes... Um, what did I see? It, you... You need all but eight or like eight owners could it's hold out or 20, something like that. What is it? 20. You need 23 owners. You need so 23 owners could hold out. to vote it. So I don't know if we get there, even if those small market teams get itchy and they will. I still don't know if there's enough unification there by that point. If they have set that deadline as the all-star break, I don't know. We'll see that maybe their deadline is, you know, May 1st. Who knows? But I think we it's obvious to happens. me that they planned on missing regular season games. They do have a deadline of when they actually need to get a deal done. Um, and I think we're going we're gonna to miss the season, or the beginning of the season. I think it's happening. I don't think there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Yep. It'll just be a question of how long. So, so on a little, I just want to bring up like a little uh, 
example, something that's a microcosm of this whole negotiations that's going on, uh, bring it really close to home for you. So we talked about Freddie Freeman last week. Yes. And um, whether he's going to go back to the Braves. So Jeff Schultz of The Athletic wrote an article on Friday about this. And he reported that the Braves posted a $568 million revenue yep. just from baseball operations, which was a record revenue for them. And it amounted to a profit of $111 million. Now, what's funny is you might say, oh, well, that's nice that they had record revenue, but like it's been a tough couple years. No. The last time they made record revenue was 2019. So for those of you out there saying, oh, the Braves can't afford to bring back Freddie Freeman, they just posted record record revenue in two of the last three years. Really? Yeah, I guess if you take out a shortened season and you say that doesn't count, their last two full seasons, they made record revenue. Despite being in the middle of... If this last season being in the middle of a pandemic, having lowered attendance most likely than um, than expected or than could have been possible. Like, I don't think they sold out every game, you know, despite being a really competitive team. So that's just kind of a, a like very micro example of what we're talking about here of like, oh, you can't afford a sixth year on your superstar that just gave you a World Series despite having record revenue two of the last three years. Yeah, but the Braves' ownership is notorious for only seeing their team as a business. And there's a mixture of, and I want to be clear about that too, there are owners that love their team and love baseball. But on the other side, there are owners that really don't care about baseball and they just see the team as a business venture. It's for profit only. And the Braves' ownership group is notoriously one of those. They've come out publicly and said that. That they are here for profit, first and foremost. And yes, winning helps. Obviously, they just had a record revenue and profit from this last year when they won the World Series. That's always going to help your profit. You're going to get more fans in the stands, and you're going to get more national media coverage, and you get incentives and bonuses from winning the World Series. So that's always going to help. However, that's why they don't give that sixth year because they don't think they do it on the financial side, not on the baseball side of, well, he's not worth it for the sixth year. So there are owners like that, and the Braves are that ownership group. They de- they definitely are. Yeah, it's hard to put value on a player, you know, like from that sense, because I think about, like, he, he's got to be either the leading uh, player or the second leading player on his team when it comes to merchandise. You know, like I would think yeah, it would probably be him Cunha. and Acuna yeah. sell the most jerseys and the most shirts and everything. And like there's a price tag attached to that, too. So if you don't resign him, you are losing some fans who I think we're in an era where people are much more fans of a player than fans of a team than they ever used to be. I Maybe baseball's a little shielded from that, but I think definitely in the I NFL. I think that's pretty normal NBA. throughout all sports right now is that you you like you attach yourself to a brand or a player more than the actual team. Right. So there there's some number tied to, you know, Freddie Freeman's brand that I'm sure they have calculated and they say it's not worth the 60 year, but it's not just the 
it's not just as simple as like how many wins are they going to project to have with him no no and i think to your point too bringing up how how profitable they were it's not like atlanta's a small market but i would say they're probably a mid-level market and um these owners are making money it's not like they're they're hovering on that line right now and i think that's another frustrating thing about like okay come on <laughs> you can spend like an extra 10 million dollars a year to take care of these pre-arb players and to incentivize a better competitive balance throughout the league um but they won't but they won't do it so we'll see where it goes and you know one thing that kind of wanted to get into segueing out of this is the impact like i was saying about the popularity of baseball um and how it's always kind of waning and going up and down and it's just really like it's a really fragile thing and i'm just you know there's a lot of things that they're they're considering and doing you know whenever major league baseball actually comes back about implementing rules I'm going to sidetrack real quick for a second. I'm going to talk about rules. Another thing in the CBA that the owners want is they want a 45-day window to implement a new rule rather than one year. And I think I'm going to kind of tie that into what I was talking about. The reason the owners want that is because they want to change a lot of what's happening in the game to accelerate, hopefully, the excitement, and they want to do it fast. They don't want to have to wait. So that's one of those things that the owners have been wanting to implement into the new CBA. And it kind of goes back to last year, what happened with spider tech and how the players really didn't like a rule being implemented, like in the middle of the season. So I don't know. I don't know how that's going to go, but it, it does disrupt. It definitely disrupts like the, the players routine and progress throughout the year to just throw a rule in the middle of the year. And, but I think that's what the ownership is trying to do right now to kind of accelerate and to ignite some more excitement in the game is just to drop new rules here and drop new rules there drop new like just they want more and different and to speed up the game uh i mean like i've been in the baseball world my entire life i love baseball for many different reasons i played it been a fan so on what's kind of your perspective as somebody that kind of came into this fandom more recently um maybe before you were a fan and now that you are a fan on like the popular of the game and maybe kind of like what keeps regular audiences away from the game or it is it, a slower start to like the game yeah i think to me it just comes down to like how like viewability um and how i do agree the, the the thing I hear the most is, you know, baseball's tough to watch. It's slow. And I if I'm going to sit in front of the TV and watch a sport, I want to watch something that's a little more fast, a little more engaging. Um, and I totally get that. I think where my why I like watching baseball more than the average person in my friend circle is um, just even having played Little League, like not at that serious of a level, but like just having you know, six or seven years of Little League gives you a different perspective on it. And maybe some of, I'm sure some of that's like nostalgia tied in, but like, you know, you kind of know what it's like to swing a bat. You kind of know what it's like to try and steal a base. Um, at, of course, at a very basic level compared to what you're seeing on TV. I'm not trying to equate Little League to the MLB, but you know what I mean? Like there's, there's still a, 
the motions that you go through are still the same because it's the same game. Um, and I think that's why like I have a greater patience with slow baseball games sometimes. Um, but but you know I'll admit that like it's the for me we've talked about this before with Universal DH. It's it's a lot of the strategy of like if I were sitting in the manager's chair. Mm-hmm. Um, in that strategic like game of chess is what gets me really uh, engaged with watching baseball, and that comes up most either in a close game during the regular season, which you know doesn't happen all the time. Uh, you can't; not every game is going to be close and interesting throughout the whole thing. Um, but it really comes out in the playoffs, and so I think for me, my viewing of baseball is like when I can sit down and be really focused during the playoffs when like every pitch has drama behind it. Um, and I think maybe just a lot of people aren't patient enough to kind of follow teams loosely throughout the regular season and then get to that point in the playoffs when it is a little more exciting and there's a little more on the line. Um, I don't know. What do you, what do you think of that? I mean, I think you kind of hit it on the head. I think baseball is a sport where you you really need to have a foundation or you should have a foundation of the understanding of the game before you can enjoy it. I think if you go into the NFL or even basketball, like you don't really need to understand what kind of plays are being called or um like the excellence and like the simple plays and things like that to have fun watching it it's it's action-packed it's fast-paced it's easy to understand too it's like easily digestible in a lot of these sports and again the nba and nfl has a lot of depth to it too so like the the more knowledgeable you are about those games the more you're going to understand what's going on every single play but the average person that just comes in and jumps in is going to understand oh he's running towards the end zone and it's kind of fun to watch these crazy athletes do crazy things on the field and it's it can be fun to watch in baseball, it's it's slower, so like it's more of a mental game, right? It's more of a mental game. It's more mentally stimulating um, because of that. And if you don't have a foundation of what it's like to swing a bat or throw a ball, or pitch sequences, or defensive shifts, or you know hitting the ball to the other side to move the runner over and things like that, like baseball is so in depth. It's so in depth. There's so much going on every single play, but it's not you wouldn't know that just on a surface level. You wouldn't. You have to have some knowledge about the game. So I think that's a big thing is that you really have to kind of commit to be a student of the game to really enjoy it. And not a lot of people want to and or have the time necessarily to do that. So I think the thing that they're looking at right now is, okay, well, how then how do we make it more exciting on that surface level for people to watch? And like you said, the playoffs are always really exciting because every pitch and every at bat and every inning is important that there's a lot of drama in baseball i mean baseball is a sport of romance it really is it's a drama filled and um the feelings you get uh for every single thing that happens the ups and downs of the game is is why i love the sport it's just a beautiful sport um i would say there's a lot of drama but it doesn't uh manifest in the way that drama does in like football and basketball because like drama in the in the world of baseball can be your favorite um your favorite hitter at the top of the order 
uh, doesn't swing at a pitch and he gets walked to first base. Like that's drama, right? But yeah, that's slapping my hands. Be excited. Yeah, I'd be I'd be going crazy. I'd be like, <laughs> yeah. what a great disciplined hitter, like great eye. Thank you for not swinging at it. But like that lack of actual physical action is boring to a lot of people. And I get and that. I think that's one of the key differences in the game is like something really a, something with a really good outcome can happen in baseball that is actually like a very boring thing to watch. Yeah, on the from surface a physical level, standpoint. Yeah, 100%. Like a really important thing can happen in a game and the average person is not it's just going to go right by them. It's going to go right over their head. But an avid fan is going to be like that was amazing. That was so important and they're going to be super excited about it. And so it's how do you bridge that gap? I don't know if you do. I mean, people have got to commit to the game to really understand it, but I think what they're trying to do is just speed up the game so that it appears that there's more action on the field right now. I mean, I think baseball, and I don't have the statistics in front of me, but I think baseball was probably at its most popular in the late 90s and early 2000s. I think it was its viewership was sky high. And the, like, the stadiums, if you look back on games in that era, like a lot of the games were sold out for almost every stadium, for every team. Fans wanted to go see the game. And so I... You know, we can't int- introduce steroids back in the game, so everybody's hitting 50 home runs. And, you know, pitchers are just lights out now, too. I mean, you ha- that's the thing, too. It's just the game is t- it's more difficult now for professional players. And because of that, you don't see as much excitement. When pitchers is- are as good as they are right now, you're not going to see a lot of runs. You're not going to see a lot of excitement um, because it's just too damn hard to hit. And so then you're watching most of a game where you're just seeing pitches. And as somebody that appreciates a pitcher, like, I can enjoy that. But the average fan, like, hell no. Like, of course. Of course that'd be boring for them. So, you know, like, one of the things that they've talked about is moving the pitcher's mound back, I think, another six inches to help the batter have just a little bit more time to see the ball and take some velocity off and increase the offense of the game. Um, You know, talking about increasing base sizes. So it's easier to steal and maybe beat out an infield single Um, because right now stolen bases in the game are like non-existent. Uh, They're non-existent. And that's one of the things I think the league is trying to um, get back into the game is having because it's player movement. I, I think if we have to summarize what the league wants right now is movement. They just want players in motion. And there's a lot of yeah, things but- that they're going to try to do to implement that. I think the stolen base thing is a lot more about injury risk and injury protection than it is about anything else. Um, yeah, but they're trying to incentivize on, it. And they're like, hey, if you have a shorter distance to go and a bigger base, maybe you'll take that risk. Yeah, but the from a team standpoint, they we talked about this, I think, last week or the week before. They're, they're just so, like, they're so like risk averse when it comes to injuries that unless steal unless you are like top one percent of base stealers in the league the instructions from the front office is like don't don't run don't let them run um and i don't like that from a viewing standpoint it's really sad that like how fast stolen bases have disappeared oh yeah um, gone from when you used to have 10 guys with 30 plus stolen bases not that long ago and now let me um let me put some perspective four. on this too. When you're talking about the numbers of stolen bases, Ricky Henderson 
has the major league record for stolen bases uh, for his career all time and for regular season. And I could, I'm just going off the top of my head. I believe his regular season stolen base and re- bases record, it was 135, 135. I think the league leader last year had like 30. <laughs> like we're not even, we're not even close. I mean, it's, it's, it's a gone arts in the game It's disappeared. Yeah. 2021 was Whit Merrifield with 40, 40. I mean, even when I was a kid, in the 2000s, I mean, players were still stealing 60, 70 bases, which, again, is a fraction of what Ricky Henderson did. But still, it's up there. And now it's ha- it's like basically half of that. Well, it wasn't even that long ago. It was uh, 2017. D. Gordon had 60. That was the last time that stolen bases have ever been above 50. So it was only five years ago. There's a huge, huge drop, drop off. off. 100%. And I think we've really seen the game slow down in these last five years, not just because of stolen bases, but, you know, in this era of strikeout, walk or home run. And it's kind of where we're at. Yeah, I I think that they. I don't know how they can get that over that injury concern when it comes to stolen bases. I mean, maybe they need to. Um. I haven't thought out like a rule, but I think the only way you overcome that is if you change the incentives to where you, you must have somebody that is kind of like a designated base stealer rather than a designated I mean, some hitter. teams had that, you know. Um, and the, But there's like incentive that you have to actually play that player. You can't just have them be a pinch runner that only plays in the ninth inning kind of a thing. Like you need to have them be part of your lineup every at every uh every time through the cycle it's interesting like not getting on tangent but like the royals had a couple players like that that they really only brought in to steal bases during their world series runs and then when they left that team they actually made like they became regular day players and other teams and made an impact so you know it's never good to pigeonhole a player into one role yeah i i i agree that it's not it's not good, but some some players that's how they make a brand for themselves. That's how they make it into so you get a the start. MLB. Sure, um, you know there was a guy on the Mariners in the mid 2010s that they brought from Japan, who I'm forgetting the name of, who was an infielder that literally the only thing he did was pinch run. I mean, it was if he was in the lineup uh, at the start of the game, it was because something was wrong. Because somebody's injured. Like somebody we have was nobody injured. else. <laughs> yeah. He was the last guy on the bench. You know, in, and to get him back into a couple other things that I think have slowed the game down a bit is analytics and like defensive shifts. I, and I, I, I'm, I don't know. I'm, I'm torn between defensive shifts because I think you should be able to play the game how you want to, but it slows the game down tremendously because you're putting six like six players on the infield or six players in the outfield depending on who's at bat and just stacking one side of the field and basically taking away any possibility of a single or double for a player and so then that promotes them well i have to hit a home run because if i hit the ball in the field it's going to be an out no matter where i hit it because there's seven players all within this like 
50 foot square radius and joey gallo bless his heart he strikes out a lot uh he came out the other day and said because he's one of those guys he's a pull hitter and they stack the right side of the infield and the outfield he's like how am i supposed to get ahead when there's six outfielders how am i supposed to get a single and a double i can't like he's like i i think the shifts should be in the game but maybe infielders have to stay in the infield and outfielders have to stay in the outfield. And I, I kind of like that idea, to be honest. It still, it still allows you to shift over, but you have to stay in the dirt. And Yeah, I'm going to have to disagree with you here. I, we, we've had a debate on this one before, and it was specifically about Joey Gallo. My stance was you need to learn how to adapt. Dude, uh, as a, as a that hitter. is such an archaic, horse-beaten argument. Like, My other reason is, in what other sport do you basically crack down on innovation when it comes to a defensive positioning scheme, right? Like, you don't see that in basketball or football. The only requirement is that you don't pass the line of scrimmage and you don't, uh, you know, have too many yeah, players so on the field you know or I mean? on the court. Yeah, there's too many no, players. No, but it's like we're not still talking. The defensive place. shift is not adding a player into right field. It, I mean, um, technically, not, it you're is not adding bringing, a player to right field. Yeah, but you're taking away from somewhere else. It's just like it, it would be like in basketball if you were to tell somebody, "Oh, you're not allowed to run the box in one, or you're not allowed to run zone because that gives an unfair advantage or whatever." Like, in coaches are trying things all the time. Or in football, like to say that you can't have two safeties back, you have to, or you must have two safeties back, you know, like, that would be absurd. People would go crazy if they made a rule like that. And I feel like it's the same thing in baseball. It's like a team gets to experiment with how they want to scheme the defense until it doesn't work, like until it breaks, and then they won't do it anymore. Look, I want to make a point clear here is that I'm not for or against the shift. I think it's an interesting idea and I think it would speed up the game. And I think ultimately, like I talked about with the DH, we have to think about what's best for the game and these defensive shifts. I don't, I don't know if they are good for the game, but I'm not necessarily against shifts. I'm kind of in the middle on it. If, if they came out and said the outfield quote unquote is the line of scrimmage, right? Like infielders, you got to stay on this side. Outfielders, you got to stay on that side. I wouldn't be upset about it. If they didn't do that and they allowed shifts to continue the way they were, I wouldn't be upset about it. But I do think it's an interesting idea. And I do think, factually, that it slows the game down for sure, 100%. And if the goal is to get outs, of course you're going to do that. I can't argue against it, but it definitely slows the game down. And if they were to implement something like that, it would speed it up. So that's my only point well, here. Is that it Why are you against me saying that the players the hitter Dude, like joey because, needs to adapt because that is that is something i can't get on i'm sorry these these hitters are facing pitchers that are pitching 100 miles an hour and they have to think in a split second like a player is not going to be the same across the board you're not going to have everybody being Derek jeter inciting out the ball the other way they have to swing to where they feel comfortable They've built swings throughout their entire career. And if you're telling them, well, you just need to change now because there's 12 people on the right side, then they're going to have less success than if they were to just try to pull the ball because then they're changing their entire swing and approach 
batting stance, everything. And they have, a, again, a split second to adjust to that. You're telling players to basically to reinvent themselves 20 years into their career. It's just not going to happen. Have to, players have to reinvent themselves all the time. Yeah, but not sports. that dramatically. Not that dramatically. Like, I don't think people understand that haven't played the game that much on how difficult that is. There are pull- This isn't new. There's been pole hitters since the beginning of time. Joey Gallo is not a new breed. The only thing different now is that people are just stacking the right side or left side of the infield. That's it. It's because so that's your natural, time, it's your natural swing. You can't help it. The way it will work is over time, coaches from Dude, very young, from I'm players you, at very young ages will teach players how to hit to both sides of the field. This is not and a that new will, topic. Over time, that will slowly make itself into the league to where they build rosters that do you don't not get think cornered, that that's happened that already? don't get cornered into it. Do you not think that's that's happened? Do you th- do you not think hitting coaches and coaches throughout the last 40 years have been telling their players to let the ball get deep and hit it the other way? That's already in the game, man. Like it just I can't explain it. I can't and explain why do we it. We feel it, sorry for Joey Gallo. I don't feel sorry for Joey Gallo. I'm just saying it slows the game down. Okay, <laughs> we can agree to disagree on this. One. Like it's such, a, it's just such a narrow-minded opinion on players need. Like that's just such an old argument. What players you need to adjust? Hit it the other way. Put a bunt down. And like in some scenarios, they've done that. But ultimately, I find it empowering. ultimately Joey Gallo. Let's say we'll just use him because we're talking about him. Is paid to get RBIs and to hit home runs. He's not paid to lay down a bunt to get an infield single. That's not what he's he paid is, to do. He is paid to win the game how the team needs him to win. And that's not how the team needs him to win. I'm telling you right now. Joey Gallo's so, on-base percentage goes up, but it's not going to help the team. How do you feel about the pitch clock? Uh, I think it's, it's an interesting piece, too, because it speeds up the game. But some pitchers just like taking their time. And I think it kind of goes into the arts of pitching is that you throw the hitter's timing off. So if you kind of force everybody to pitch within the same parameters, you kind of take that strategy away. And I know you're a big fan of strategy, John. Um, but My I don't think it might surprise you then. I don't think it hinders the game. I, I, I like the pitch clock. I think somebody like Mark. Why was it? Was it Mark Burley? Mark Burley was fast, wasn't he? Or was he slow? I can't remember, but there was somebody that used to take like just just forever. You know, they'd get the pitch, they'd walk around the mound, they'd get the, the rosin, they'd times. throw it up and down. Yeah, they pick up the dirt, they'd rub their hands together, do a couple claps, point and say hello to the fans. And I don't like that's it's ridiculous. And so I understand why there's a pitch clock. Like there is a strategy of throwing a hitter's timing off because then if you have different timings between your releases if you let's say take two seconds to make a pitch one one pitch and then the next pitch you take 10 seconds you're really throwing the timing off and i like that strategy but i think putting a, a pitcher's clock on where it says okay well you need to do that within whatever 30 seconds or 20 seconds i think is totally fine and it speeds the game up yeah and you can still have that strategy within yeah, 20 seconds for sure. so i like that uh juicing and de-juicing the ball we've seen a lot of this 
over the last five years, I would say. I think in an attempt to have more home runs, usually the way that it works is they will redesign the ball to tighten it um, so that it has um, the aerodynamics of the ball travel through the air faster. They try it out in AAA usually to see what the effect is. And then the year after that is when it gets the new ball arrives in the MLB. And as a side note, it makes judging prospects a little hard because they're usually playing with a different ball than than the major leaguers are. But what is your overall opinion of like kind of the last five years of this whole like back and forth redesign the ball? Well, I don't know if you feel the same way about this, but I think changing the balls inherently is fine. I think the issue at hand and the problem with this is that they didn't tell anybody they were doing that. They didn't tell the players that they were changing the ball. It was just in 2019, everybody's hitting 40 home runs again, and something's off. The ball's carrying, the ball's flying. I mean, you can't sit here and tell me that Alex Bregman is a man that should hit 40-plus home runs. He's not. He's not a power hitter. Or that Glaber Torres should be hitting 38 home runs. But they did in 2019. And the problem is that, they again, they just didn't tell players. They didn't give them any preparation on what was going to happen. The pitchers have pitching the same way they have been, and all of a sudden, that pitch didn't work. That pitch carried over the fence. But I bet you if they had that knowledge that, okay, these balls are going to carry, they're going to pitch differently. And that's my huge issue with it, is if you're going to make a rule change, you have to give notice to the players that it's happening, and that didn't happen. Um, But I think inherently changing the balls back and forth, I don't necessarily have a problem with that. Uh, I think pitchers would argue with me about that because it changes the feel of the ball and therefore changes their pitches and can potentially, I mean, I know what Tyler Glass now kept getting blisters on his fingers. And I think he was outspoken about how, he, how much he hated the change and the, the feeling and the texture of the ball. Uh, I mean, what do you, what do you think about it? Do you, do you like, do you like the change and juice in the ball? Uh, again, I just hate that they didn't tell anybody. Well, with the whole not telling anybody thing, don't you think that I mean, a lot of pitchers commented that at the beginning of the season, the ball felt different. Yeah. So why would it be any different? Just playing devil's advocate. Why would it be any different telling them, hey, the ball is different versus the, you know, they feel the ball for the first time. And like, oh, it's different. Like, aren't they going to respond the same way? No. They're going to have to they're going to have to try to figure out how to change up their uh, arsenal as the season goes on, because clearly something has changed. I think if you give them if you give them time, if let's say the previous year, 2018, they give that those juice balls to all the minor league affiliates and they tell major league players, hey, we're testing out this ball in the minor leagues. People knew that was going right. On. And then they didn't they make a decision. It, but they knew they make a decision on. in the offseason, right? They begin the offseason. OK, yes. Next year we are moving to this ball. Then it gives the pitcher his entire offseason to get familiar with that ball. OK. They don't come up and show up to spring training or the first major league game and be like, hmm, this ball feels different. What's going on here? So, yes, you definitely need to give them some preparation and some advance notice. I just don't know if the outcome would have been any different. I think it would have been because they're animals, man. They're intelligent people. You give them time to prepare. They're going to find a way to doctor up the ball in their different ways and change their pitches and their grips and things like that and uh, their strategies and pitch sequences. Yeah, I think it makes a difference, all the difference in the world. I guess, yes, if you tell them six months in advance of opening day, yes, it will be different. I guess I meant like, you know, 
telling them opening day versus just handing them the ball opening day. Right. No difference. And my point is tell them in advance of the season, not like, oh, hey, by the way, these balls are different now. Like they're going to know their difference once they different once they touch them. But then it gives them less time to prepare before they see live games, if that makes sense. Did they have the new balls in spring training? I don't remember. I don't know. I don't know. I'm not sure. I would assume so. I mean, can you imagine playing with an entire month, whatever, 30 games with one ball, and then all of a sudden the regular season starts, and they're like, nope, another ball, different ball. That'd be way worse. If they do that, even worse. Yeah. I, to answer your question about juicing and dejuicing the ball, I am um, I'm not a huge fan of juicing the ball. Um, I, I don't like that shift to, oh, we're just going to make everything a home run. Um, and I don't, I, I'd have to look at data on like whether that boosted viewership, but I just don't think that that's sustainable. Like, yeah, maybe in the short term you get a little more viewership, but I don't know if like in the long run, that's actually going to improve viewing for baseballs to just have home runs, strikeout, 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 strikeout. Walk, I think strikeout, 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 home run. I think, I think you're right in that sense, but it, it's hard to like. I think the game is better when there's more home runs for sure. Is that is the juice ball the answer? I don't know, but I mean, again, going back to what I was saying in the steroid era, everybody's hitting home runs. I mean, the game was at its peak of excitement and popularity, so we know that yes, home runs do create excitement. Well, what doesn't a lot of times is walks and strikeouts. And we're again would, in that era of that's the kind of the three piece suit that baseball is wearing right now is home runs, strikeouts, and walks. I, I don't what know is if I have an more? We know that a home run with it with just one person on base is a lot more exciting than a solo home. Hundred percent. Yeah. So, you know, I think they need to find a way to. What I will say, I guess, reach this medium where you have. Um, you still have players that are trying to get on base and not just trying to hit it over the fence. What I will say is in 2019, when all those home runs were being hit, we had some really exciting games. And I think back to the, of course, I'm a Yankees fan, so I'm going to mention Yankees game, but the, the Yankees versus Twins game, which was probably the best and most exciting regular season game that I think anybody has ever seen and witnessed. Do you know that game I'm talking about, John? No, I don't. It was so the game ended. And I, I don't think scores should be this high, but the game ended, and I think in ten innings, and it was fourteen to eleven. Fourteen, or maybe it's fourteen to twelve. Actually, fourteen to twelve. The Yankees won, of course. Thank God. And that game had a lot of home runs, but it had a lot of hits and a lot of drama in the game. And I think if I'm going to point somebody towards any game to watch and understand the drama of baseball would have been that game. But I don't think that game would have been possible without a juice baseball because there was like nine home runs hit that game. And, but it was all back and forth. The Yankees would hit a two run home run and go up by a run. And then the twins would come back and hit a two run home run and go up by a run. And it was like that for like from the seventh to the 10th inning. And it was just back and forth and back and forth. And that was a lot of excitement. So if we're looking at like a small sample, of what that ball did, I think I have to say that it did increase the excitement for the game and, and the popularity of the game during that year. I, I think it I did. will say the Twins that year were built to be a power hitting lineup. 
like well, yeah they led the one, league in home runs one through nine you had all power hitters or like you know you didn't have anyone on that team that was just a you know under 10 home run guy so that might be a little bit of selective bias there but i do remember from that season um glaber torres was just a completely different player every time he played the orioles i oh think God, he had yeah. like had 14 12, home 12 runs 14 home runs against those against one every team game dude, every game he would hit two home runs too it wasn't just one home run and it became so like <laughs> egregious that like, you would look for that on the schedule are they playing the orioles this weekend there's Better some start labor torres <laughs> there's some sound bites from the orioles uh announcer and like i'm getting so defeated and frustrated every time glaber torres hit a home run like um after we're done recording i want i'm gonna send you a couple links it's hilarious to listen to him react to another glaber torres home run against the o's um and i'm probably biased to that season because we i think we were the best team in baseball ultimately that year we won 103 games we had an amazing lineup dj lemayhew and glaber torres had career years it was a really fun team to watch so i might be biased in saying 2019 was exciting because my team was exciting yeah, but the uh, the Nationals were pretty exciting in the playoffs. Yeah, they were exciting. Like, that was not a, that was not not a disappointing. Not the regular season. That was not a disappointing playoffs. Except for the, well, speak for yourself. Except the Houston Yankees series. I think I've talked about this already. We don't yeah. have to dive back into it. I'm just trying to bring back I appreciate uh, painful that, memories. Um, okay, how about last one? In terms of popularity of baseball, what the robot strike zone would do to the game, whether you're pro or against. I think the players are probably more pro than the fans are, but it's it's like the more every year that goes on, it's it's harder and harder to argue against an automatic or robot strike zone because of how bad the umpires are sometimes. And when you look at other sports that have and we have replay in baseball, but they won't they don't review strikes and balls but if you look at other sports they always make sure that they get the call correct right the nfl if it's under two minutes especially there's there's automatic reviews you don't even have to throw a challenge flag nba i believe is somewhat in the same way right the, certain there things, are certain tip balls things, and things like that that go out of bounds whatever yeah what have certain you. things in the nba they don't review which can be really frustrating but yeah for the most part maybe like three quarters of the calls they will review and balls and strikes is like one of the most pivotal things in baseball that really turns the tide of a game. And I'll give an example on this too, and something that's not reviewable in baseball. Last year, the Giants had the best record in baseball, and they faced the Dodgers in the first round of the playoffs in NLDS. And the Dodgers won 100 plus games, but they weren't better than the Giants. So they went five games, five out of five games, and Wilmer Flores comes up. And I can't remember, I think they were down by one run, and he's got a runner on. I believe he's got a like a 2-2 or a full, a full count, and gets pitched a slider out outside the zone, and he checks swings, and they said he swung. Call it a strike. Season's over. There was two outs. Season's over. Giant season is done. And upon review, it was apparent, very clear and apparent, that he did not swing. It wasn't even close. And so I think like mm-hmm. that and... 
strikes and balls, all of those things together, it, it's really hard after seeing things like that to say, mm, maybe we maybe we should have an automatic strike zone because it's there's so it's so important. A missed call there like really turns the tide of the game. So I'm still I'm still unsure about it because I I still like some traditional things of the game, of course, and I think the umpires having some like their own quote unquote strike zone is kind of one of the niches of baseball, but is that to a detriment of the game? I don't know. And um, but we need consistent calls. I think that's the biggest thing. Is that if an ump has a tall strike zone or a wide strike zone, then he's got to call the same strikes the entire game, so the player knows what to expect. And right now we're seeing so much inconsistency, and I think ultimately that's that's bad for the players first and foremost, but probably bad for the game. I I do want to defend the umpires a little bit here. It's a that, it's a tough uh, job. It's a really I'm gonna also preface that I think I remember, that. it's a really difficult job. Yeah, and I think I remember seeing an article a year ago or two about like the percentage of times that they get the call right is I don't want to misquote the percentage. It's very, very high. But, you know, if let's say it's ninety-eight percent, I'm not reporting that, but let's say it's ninety-eight percent. If you have a hundred and fifty pitches a game. That means that they are going to get the wrong call, you know, three or four times. So maybe a little bit more. Um, so like, we're always going to gravitate to what they get wrong and not appreciate the fact that they called, you know, 145 out of 150 correct. I mean, you're That's always going to focus on the defense negative, right? of the umps. Ultimately, especially if it's like a game situation moment where the game's on the line or tying runnings at the plate or whatever. And that's really where we see these the most. You don't see it a lot of times. I mean, if you're really like John boy, will do reviews of these like umpire report cards and he'll go into pitches that are done in the third or fourth or second inning and be like, that was really bad. But for the most part, the only pitches you're going to focus on that are being missed are like at the end of the game where it's a tie game or whatever. But true. I, I'm I'm okay right now, I think, with umpires continuing to call strikes and balls. But again, every year, I inch a little bit closer towards maybe we should have an automated strike zone. I think they're going to start testing out in the minor league soon. So we'll see how it goes. Yeah. Are there maybe any your opinion, maybe, maybe your opinion will just converge with when it actually happens. It'll be this beautiful, like, it's the way the universe meant season. it to be yeah stars aligned so i don't know but i don't know if that's good for the game just a final thought on that i don't know if that promotes more popularity for baseball but i think it i think the it promotes happiness for the players ultimately yeah i don't i think i think it will help the game move a little faster um because you know the pitcher and everyone just needs to see a little dot change they don't have to like wait you know, for an up or something, if there's a controversial call, you know, sometimes they'll like stall a little bit there. They'll wait a second or two before. Yeah, they they're not sure. Give their call. <laughs> um, it'll feel more transactional and, and maybe a little bit more robotic. And I don't know, like, yes, the hitter might enjoy that, but the players might actually make it feel like they're in a simulation almost. That's one of my thoughts is like, well, I think that's what they're testing it out. And, you know, every sport has missed calls. Baseball is not alone on that. 
Um, I mean, we're talking about the Super Bowl. There was a lot of game deciding, game changing, I should say, calls that were missed, whether it was offensive pass interference or a non-holding call at the end of the game. Like these things happen in all sports. And if you're going to have human beings umpiring, refereeing games, you're going to have human mistakes. And that just comes with the game. And I don't necessarily inherently think there's anything wrong with that, but there's also nothing inherently wrong with trying to get closer and closer and closer to 100% accuracy. Right. I do want to keep umps elsewhere in the field. Yeah, 100%. 100%. So, All right. you know, these are things that are being talked about. You know, ultimately, I just, I love baseball and I want it to always, I want to, you know, I want to share that, you know, I, I, tr- I try to share that with my partner, even though she is not into sports at all, but I love the game so much. So she, you know, she gives it a try and she listens to me as I talk to her. And, uh, you know, baseball can be a difficult thing because you have to explain a lot. You do. Um, but I promise you, like, if you take the time to like, to listen to somebody that knows the game a little bit and understand the game, like you're going to learn to love it. It's just a beautiful sport. And I want that experience for, for everybody really. And it's even better if you have a team, of course, like watching the game is obviously fun, but, um, if you have a team to root for and to live into that romance and that drama, it makes all the difference in the world. And like the emotions you feel good and bad. Um, it's one of the reasons I love baseball so much. It makes me feel in a lot of different ways. I I don't know if I can add anything onto that. That was pretty eloquent. Thank you. Thank you. So, uh, homework for everybody. Learn a little bit about baseball. Get into it. It'll be good for your soul. There you go. All right, Bobby. Outside of baseball, what are you spending your time on? I mean, I was, I was talking about at the beginning. Um, I've been just grinding Elden Ring. And, you know, I'm a big gamer. I'll be talking about games every now and then because it's a part of my life. but uh if you if anybody's familiar with dark souls games it's the same developer and these games are notorious for being extremely difficult and punishing and that's exactly what elden ring is it's like it's dark souls but it's a bigger and more open world and there's just so much to do and to see and it's so immersive and you really have to be kind of a masochist personality to get through this game because you you can spend hours just trying to do one thing or beat one boss. And it's just like this, this feeling like, no, I'm going to do it this next time. I'm doing this next time. And you push through and you push through when you finally, when you finally do it, man, it's so rewarding on a game. Like there's no game that is as rewarding as this one and is frustrating. And, uh, I've been, ugh, just, I'm loving this game right now. It's, uh, it's bringing happiness to my heart. So I can I have, really hear the emotion. Yeah, dude, out. this is I'll, incredible. It's such a good dude. It's such a good game. It, we should get you. It pisses me off so on, much. But uh, we should get you on their social media feed and put you in front of you know their marketing material. Yeah, at me, a hundred percent. I, I will totally promote this game. It's funny though because there's a lot of like there's a lot of Souls veterans that played the games before in the past that understand. The dynamic of this game is totally different. And so you have all these newcomers coming in because it's so popular that have never played a Souls game. And um, they give up. They're like, why would I play a game that's so hard and frustrating? I just want to have fun. And it's not going to be for everyone. And I understand that. But you're kind of missing the point of what the game is. And it's so beautifully designed. And if you really just... it kind of like baseball. If you only look at it on the surface level, you're going to miss it. And... Just give it a chance and push through. Be patient. If if you are a gamer and you love 
you love just grinding through a game. You love single player games. You like being immersed in something. Elden Ring is is that game. There's a lot of content, a lot of a lot of things that it can give back, and it'll be frustrating. You have to be patient. You have to understand. You have to give yourself time to understand and learn the game. It takes. It's not. Not everybody can beat this game, and I'm going to say that. A lot of Souls fans will say, oh, anybody can beat... They can't. Let's be honest. But you, if you put time in and you learn it, you can get there. You can get there. But right off the bat, you really have to be patient. Folks, if you're looking for a place where Elden Ring and baseball can be combined into the same sentence, look no further. I bring it all the together, 30 man. 30 Club you podcast. better believe it. Well, that's fun. I'm glad you're having fun with it. I am. Do you think you will beat it? Do you think you're one of those oh, yeah. chosen people? Oh, yeah. I have like a thousand hours in the other Souls games. I'm going to beat it for sure. Okay. I have faith in you. Thank you. Are you undefeated? Are you like, have oh, you hell no. I've died like a hundred times. Every game. Oh, no, undefeated? no. I mean, oh, yeah. Have you beaten every game that you've bought? Oh, 100%. I'm a gamer, man. Okay. I've been gaming since I was four years old. I don't know if I like I don't know if there's a few where you just gave up. You're like, yeah, I don't like it anymore. Or something else. Well, that's different. Out. Like if I lose interest in a game or if I start a game and then I get distracted by something like that's different. But if I play a game, I will like if I'm invested into it, I'm going to beat it 100 percent. I little sidetrack. I so my gaming consists of sports games, uh, lots of sports ball in this household. And <laughs> I often like to do franchise um, mode, you know, where you're playing like, yeah, um, not just one season, but you are the general manager and you're playing every season um, for as long as you can go until they fire you. Um, Getting fired a lot. Huh? And I've never actually have had an undefeated season. Part of that is because I don't like to play on the easiest mode because that like the whole season, because that would be kind of boring yeah i want to challenge like i want to ramp up the difficulty level um but there are some times where even if i build like a super team that's just utterly ridiculous and you change the ratings and er everyone is a 99 out of 99 i think the computer still uh is instructed to make sure you don't have an undefeated season because there are times where like you know i've had this where it's like a game that just has statistics that are out of this world for the opponent and the opponents are not like you know rated 99 out of 99 but it's just like the way that the computer does it is it's like no you can't win every game like you you can only win 80 out of 82 games something like that i swear i swear the developers put that in there because there's some games where it's just like this is this isn't I mean, real. it just gives you something to keep working towards you'll play for 40 years <laughs> in hopes of getting that one undefeated season and keep playing the game and if you if you think i'm crazy in 2011 when they came out with um mlb 2k 2k 11 um they actually said if you um it wasn't a season but they said if you can throw a perfect game in 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 this game we will give you like ten thousand dollars or something i remember that yeah they made it like such a hard difficulty to be able to do that that you know only i don't know what percentage of the time it happened but there were only maybe a few hundred people in the world that did it there was an achievement like going back to mlb 2k my my brother came home with one of his friends, he was a huge baseball guy for um, 
for spring break in college. And this was like, I don't know, the late 2000s. So I was playing MLB like 2K7 or something. And there's an achievement in that game to throw a perfect game. And we spent that entire week, hours every day, trying to throw a perfect game. And I would pitch a game and then my brother's buddy would pitch a game. We'd go back and forth. And the last day, I, I had to go to baseball practice. And I leave as his buddy is playing the game. <laughs> I get a call from him. And he pitched it. He got a perfect game right at the last, like, his last day that he was going to be there before they had to go back. We've been trying for a week. And he got it. And that was a big deal to me because I was such an achievement hunter back in the day. Um, wanting to get everything on every game. So, like, these games, like, are video games, but, like, yeah, they'll make a challenge and do things like that. It's, it's not, things like that aren't that easy. Yeah. Did you pitch with the same pitcher each time, or did you switch it up? We pitched, um, what did we pitch with? Jason Schmidt. I think he was a Dodger at the time. Do you remember? You probably don't know him. He was on the Giants. He was a big pitcher for the Giants back in the day when Barry Bonds was there, and then he went to the Dodgers. After that, that was our pitcher that we got a perfect game with. Jason Schmidt. Hmm. I know the name, but I can't tell you much more. I feel like wouldn't Jonathan Papelbon be like at his height back then? He's a closer, my dude. That's true. I'm just trying to think. Sorry, I'm trying to think of like who was the best pitcher in 2007, 2008. No, 2006, because it's the year. 2K7 is the 2000. I don't, even, I don't even remember. Maybe you like Johan Santana or something. Yeah. Anyway, that's fine. I'm glad. I'm glad your your friend finally got. Yes, it. he got that achievement, lifetime achievement for himself. Um, what I've been spending my time on the last week, and I still haven't conquered this, but it's not a video game related. Um, so I play fancy baseball. We mentioned that in previous episodes. Um, and I'm currently doing my. MBA at UW, and I'm going to bring these two things together. Uh, I'm taking a class in grad school that is a modeling, it's called modeling with spreadsheets, and it's kind of like a linear programming class where you're creating models that optimize a certain scenario. So let's say it's like you are a furniture maker and you want to maximize your profit based off of the amount of wood pieces that you have that can be built into a chair or a table, right? So it's like a table requires this much wood and the wood costs this much and you can sell a table for this, but you can sell a chair for that. How do you put those inputs into the model and maximize your profit? It's exciting stuff. So it's very exciting. And so I have been working on building a fancy baseball model that says, here are all the positions you need on your team, the positions you need to fill. Here are the like projected points for the upcoming season for each player. And then here are the expected salaries, because in one of my leagues, we do a bidding auction system rather than a snake draft. And if you ever want to start fancy baseball or any fancy league, I would recommend auctions. They're way more fun, way more exciting. Um, basically, you throw a player out and everyone bids on them until you know, going, going, gone. And then it's whoever had the highest bid. Um, I like that 
format. And so one of the other constraints in the model is you have a budget that you have to fall within. And so this model is essentially going to give you the ideal roster and how much you should spend or bid on each player. It'll give you a max bid. And it's pretty similar to the way that a lot of these fancy websites build their models. Um, but, you know, it's a lot more fun to build your own and to say that you, like, understand the inner workings of how a, a site fun? like CBS makes their list, their cheat sheet of bid amounts. It is. It is really rewarding when you can actually put those numbers together yourself. Um, and it all depends on what your inputs are, like how good is your projected, uh, your uh, data coming in for what you project a player to do for the upcoming season. And that's a whole other machine learning model that I've also been working on that basically takes historical data and it weights each um, season a little differently. So your inputs matter, but it's really cool. One of my friends told me that I should optimize or I should uh, I should monetize this and I should just post it on Craigslist and be like, hey, I'll draft your fantasy. I'll draft your fancy team for you. Or you should call you know, up Kevin 50, Cash. 50 bucks a draft. Give you a job in his analogous department. Uh, I'm, I'm trying. I'm trying. We'll see if that happens someday. That, that's a dream job. But um, but yeah, this is one of the nerdiest things I've ever done. I still it's not ready public use yet um but we're getting there I'm it's a work to in progress. iron out the wrinkles <laughs> yeah it, not it's, ready for the world's eyes it'll work that's <laughs> why i've been spending my time on this is very john it's a very john project and like all things that john does i'm sure it's fabulous i'm sure you, you've done a great job i need to set up a cost structure because like a 50 50 flat he doesn't really work because some leagues, you know, like that would be all of your winnings, right? I need to make it to where it's like 25% of your winnings or something like that, you know? Wait, so you get like but more that, out of bigger leagues and, but you keep everybody yeah. in it? Yeah, or like maybe there's a minimum amount, but, but then like. Isn't the value of your product then diminished in some ways? Like you're not yeah, putting I, actual I would, value on your product. Yeah, I would I would create a minimum threshold that it has to cross. Like I'm not going to give my I'm not going to draft somebody's team or give my model out for less than 50 bucks or 100 bucks, something like that, you know. Okay, well, and what? for me, it's a great thing because I don't have to rebuild a new model for each league. I just have to tweak some settings and, you know, it it's some next level basically stuff. it's just paying back it's paying back all the hours that i'm putting into it now yo when i do when i do fantasy i just look at the player i'm like man eh, i think they're gonna do good yeah i'll play him that's i just go by my heart and that's probably why i never win i i have i'm notorious for coming in second and third which I will get very frustrated if i talk about the last couple seasons is this model <laughs> gonna push you is this, is this the, you know, it's going to get you the championship? Let's just say baseball is a long season. <laughs> yeah, and yes, it is. Injuries suck. And I've just gotten snake bitten by injuries in like late August, early September when I'm, you know, vying for first place. That's, and that's, yeah, that's happened a couple years in a row. It's happened a couple years in a row. And it's really well, getting tired of it. As a Yankees fan, I'm, I can sympathize and empathize with you oh don't give me that you don't, don't give, give me, me that. that we set a record 
in 2019 your... for most IL players on the IL. Okay, we had like we you... had like 29, 30 players. How many players on a roster? 25. We had more players going the IL than we had on a roster. Okay, I have a point. You Don't and your try. 17 World Series championships. 17. John. I'm gonna feel. Are you trolling me right so... now? Are you trolling me right now? Feel so 17? sorry for you. 17. You is that your number? How many is it? It's How 27. Is it? You goose. <laughs> okay let's not get that wrong yeah. 40 pennies, how can anyone championships how can anyone feel sorry for you that you had the most il players last year when you have 27 championships we need champ because it's been 12 12 years 13 years since our last championship that's why yeah 2009 okay it's I a long time it's it. over a decade i don't like that yeah it's been a great decade has it okay baseball's popularity is in the toilet and it's because the yankees haven't won let's get real that's the real reason and with that, <laughs> that'll be the uh, conclusion of our episode. So Bobby, I can hash this out off air That's right. and, and you don't have to listen to us. Um, or if you want us to yell out. at each other, let us know. Yeah. Let us know in the comment section. That's right. Um, I do. I do have, a, I have something to say, though. I, we don't have a large listener base, but just to thank you, everybody that does listen and anybody that makes it to the end, especially. And if you have made it to the end, I'm curious. Um, if you wouldn't mind adding either me or John, why you either love baseball or why it is hard for you to watch baseball. Like, what do you think the issue in a simple way is with the popularity of the game? And I'm at Yankee six on Twitter and John is Thorpe Fury. If you guys have the willingness to do that, I'd be curious to know the people's opinion on that. Yeah, I, I'll be really impressed if somebody made it this far and yeah. gives us an explanation for why they can't watch baseball. And you have. Thank you again. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, we will wrap it up there. We'll be back next week. Maybe we'll have some last minute drama in the whole lockout uh, saga, but most likely not. Yeah. I don't want to get your hopes up. Bobby. Yeah, nope, they're not. Um, if not, we may venture around to some other sports going on. Uh, and we will talk to you all later. All right, everybody. Enjoy your week. Toodles.